This morning, I want to talk to you about reconciliation. I want to talk to you about reconciliation. And when we come to the book of Genesis, uh, when we come and we go, man, why, do, why would God want us to study this book of Genesis? And I don't know how many sermons we've given to this book. I mean, like a million, probably more than some of you have wanted to hear. But, uh, but when we look at the book of Genesis and, and we've gone through it, we always have to remind ourselves, why is God wanting us to study this book? And there's a lot of different reasons. But one of the reasons why he wants us to study it is to, is to recognize two things in our life. Number one, as human beings, we are deeply separated. We are deeply divided. We are deeply um, troubled. How many of you guys have gone out into the world and, and you go, what is wrong with everybody, right? I mean, you just want to pull your hair out. You want to go, why is everything so jacked up, Okay. And sometimes you look in the mirror and you look at yourself and you ask yourself, why am I so troubled? Why am I deeply flawed? What has gone on in my life? And Genesis lays the groundwork for the problem of the world. And what Genesis says is that our ultimate representative... Adam and Eve in the garden, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of this tree. And what Adam and Eve did is they crossed that boundary that God established. And the moment they crossed that that boundary, we all crossed that boundary with them because we were in Adam and Eve. And they took the fruit and they ate and they disobeyed God's gracious provision and boundary. They crossed that line. And the moment they did that, a series of separations happened in their life. The first and ultimate separation happened between them and God. They were separated from God. In fact, so separated were they, they went from pure fellowship and love and worship of God to hiding from God. When you walk out into the world and you see and you look around, you go, what's wrong with everybody? Everybody is hiding from God. Everybody is running from God. And even after we become believers, we still struggle to run from God. That is the result of original sin in us. That is the result of brokenness and disintegration in our hearts and our mind. But not only did we get separated from God, but we got separated from each other. Do you remember when God came to Adam and Eve and what did he say? He's like, what have you done? And what did they do? They blamed everybody but themselves. When you and I walk out into the world and you, and you look at people, you go, what's wrong with you? Everybody says it's his fault or it's her fault or it's their fault. And what that points to is the division of humanity. The division of human beings from each other. We struggle to hold it together. We struggle to sustain relationships that are healthy and whole. Why? Because of this separation from God and from each other. But number three. Original sin not only separated us from God and separated us from each other, it separated us from ourselves. There was a psychological disintegration in the minds and the hearts of human human beings when they took that forbidden fruit. You might remember one of the most poignant little phrases. I mean, so poignant. You know what? It's the story of our life. It's a stand-in story for you and me when Adam says, God says, where are you? What have you done? And Adam says, I was afraid. 
was afraid. That pointed to a heart condition of fear, of, of uncertainty, of insecurity, of a lack of identity, of, a, of I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what's going on anymore. I don't, I don't, my orientation in life is, is totally confused. Fourthly, the ultimate separation from God leads to separation from each other, from ourselves. And then finally, there's a separation from nature. Because as opposed to using nature and the resources of earth to build up a culture that would glorify God, to to honor God by the way we build societies and cultures, as opposed to doing that, we use creation to hide from God, to explain away everything, to distract ourselves. All the great technology we use to run away from God, you see, that is a separation from nature and from provision. When you walk out, it's real simple. The problem of the world is separation. And if that is the problem of the world, then the healing for the world is reconciliation. Because what is reconciliation? It is the restoration of all of those relationships. Imagine your life. Imagine your life. If you could have a relationship with God, if you could have relationships with each other that make sense, if you could have relationships with, with, with culture and with nature, if you could have a relationship with yourself that was secure. So when we come to Genesis, not only do we see the explanation of the brokenness of humanity, what we also see God's healing solution. We see a God who not only is the creator of the world, he is the redeemer. Can I get an amen? He is the compassionate God who loves people, who's in white hot pursuit of human beings to restore them, to bring them back to themselves, to bring them back to him, to bring them back to identity. This is the good news of Genesis is that despite all of the brokenness, there is hope in the work of God on our behalf. Yes, there is. There is mercy and transformation. You're like, what's that got to do with Joseph in Genesis? Everything. Because Joseph comes from the patriarch family of Jacob. And Jacob, remember, if you think about it, if you've ever been to church for any amount of time, you've always heard of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we go, man, I guess if he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they must really have it together. I mean, Jacob must have been a spiritual stud. Jacob must have really had it together. And that's exactly what he doesn't have. In fact, Jacob is one of the most dysfunctional people you will read in all of the Bible. And he has a family that is the most dysfunctional family that maybe you will read in all of the Bible. All the 11 sons of Jacob the future foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel, the future forefathers of the 12 tribes of Israel are at this point in our study of Genesis absolutely dysfunctional. They are separated. Separated from God, lacking faithfulness, lacking loyalty in a covenant that God had given to them. Separation from themselves, they can barely sit down at the dinner table without fighting and throwing forks at each other. Separated from themselves when they throw their little brother, the brothers, throw Joseph into a pit and leave him there to die. And then ultimately sell him into slavery, separated from themselves. Separated from themselves psychologically in terms of being utterly insecure. And as we can see, they're separated from nature because they have no 
ability to deal with a famine. We come to Genesis 42, and you know what we see? We begin to see how God brings about reconciliation, how God takes this dysfunctional family and reconciles and heals and renews them. And before I go into the text and outline for you how God brings about reconciliation in our life, let me ask you a personal question. This is a tough question. Are you running from God? Where do you need reconciliation? Where are you confused about who you are? Where are you in sin? Where are you running from God, crossing lines that you know you shouldn't be? What are some relationships in your life that need reconciliation? What I'm about to share with you right now could be the source of healing in your life. But for us believers, followers of Jesus Christ, I'm about to outline for you the gospel that we can share with people and walk in with each other so that we can constantly love each other and constantly celebrate this relationship that we have through Jesus Christ. We say, how does God design reconciliation in our life? I see three things in the chapters I'm about to review. Number one, God uses, now this is the most, tough, this is the most difficult thing that God does to bring about reconciliation in our life. So easy. But here's the first thing God does. He uses severe mercy. God always uses severe mercy in our life. Let me tell you what I mean. When we come to Genesis 42, we remember from last week that Joseph had predicted a great famine. A famine that would be so great that it would make all good days be forgettable. It would be so great. And this famine would not only affect Egypt, but the famine would affect all the nations around Egypt. This famine famine reaches Jacob, reaches his sons, so that they are starving and they are in a famine time. Now, the good news is is that Joseph, even though he was sold into slavery, he's now ascended to the most powerful man in Egypt outside of Pharaoh. And he happens to have all the grain. And so all of the world is coming to Joseph. All of the nations are coming to Joseph. By the way, it's a great picture of Jesus Christ, is it not? He has died. He has risen. He has ascended. And the Bible says all of the nations will come before Jesus one day and will worship. And Jesus has for a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation who believe in him. Jesus has a feast and a table. He has grain that will save people from the coming judgment of God. And Joseph has reached this point. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, we have Jacob. And we got his sons. And they're so hungry for food. And Jacob had heard that someone in Egypt had food. And so he looks at his son. And because they're a dysfunctional family, I mean, we all know what a dysfunctional family is because Thanksgiving comes around once a year. Amen? And Jacob looks at his sons and he goes, stop being lazy bums and go to Egypt and get us some Wheaties because we're all hungry. I mean, I brought you into this world to help out, so help out and go. I heard that there's some grain in Egypt and so they go. Little do the brothers know that after 27, now listen, everybody say 27, After 27 years, 27 years throwing Joseph into that pit, thinking that he got sold into slavery and was probably dead, little do they know that they're about to be reunited with Joseph. They're about to come into the presence of the very brother that they thought was either a slave or dead, 
and he's the most powerful man in Egypt. And so what does that look like? Jump down to verse 6. Genesis 42, verse 6. It says, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph had had that dream many years before. Why did the brothers hate young 17-year-old cocky Joseph with the, with the sweet daddy coat of many colors? Because he told him a dream. One day you will bow down to me. One day I will rule and reign and you will come and bow down to me. And they were like little punk and they throw him into the pit. Well, here they are. Little do they know that they're bowing down before Joseph. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. And they said, we come from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Now, why don't they recognize him? Well, because it's 27 years later. And Egypt shaved them down. You know, they shave in Egypt and they look girly. They look, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so pretty boy Joseph is unrecognizable to his brothers. So they don't, they don't recognize him. It makes sense. 27 years later and he's all shaved down. And he's all pretty. He's probably wearing some of that Egyptian makeup that you've seen in the movies like Cleopatra. Anyways, verse 9. <laughs> and Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. I bet he did. He said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we are your servants, 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Jacob refused to let the youngest, that would be Benjamin, go with Joseph because Jacob, it's like every time I send somebody with you boys, something happens to him, and I'm not going to let happen to Benjamin, my new favorite son, happen to him what happened to Joseph. So I'm not going to let Benjamin go. Verse 14, Joseph said to them, it is as, as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go to, from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So he's like, think on that for three days. And then three days later, he says, all right, I'm going, to take, I'm going to take one of your brothers from you. I'm going to give you some grain, and you're going to go back and bring your little brother to me. Skip down to verse 21. This is the private conversation of the brothers with themselves, and this is important. It says, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in, what we saw, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So what's happening to them is they're remembering 27 years before when they throw Jacob, when they throw through Joseph into that pit, they're remembering his cries of distress. They're remembering how badly they treated him. Reuben, verse 22 He's kind of the wimpy, whiny one. Uh, Reuben answered, did I not tell you to sin against the boy that you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. 
And they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Skip down to verse 28. What Joseph does is he puts their money back in their sacks without them knowing it to see how they would handle the fact that they didn't actually pay for their grain but got it for free and got their money back. And on their journey back, verse 28, he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts felled them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Ultimately, they go back to Jacob and said, they took Simeon from us, but here's some Wheaties. And Jacob is like, every time you guys go out, you get in trouble. And I'm not sending Benjamin back with you, and you're never leaving this house again. You're grounded forever and ever. Bring me a bowl of Wheaties. That's what he does. Now, what do we get out of this chapter? Here's what we get. Two observations. The first observation is the severity of Joseph to his brothers. Did you see that? It says he spoke roughly to them. And later on, the brothers say, he spoke roughly to us, Dad. They don't know it's Joseph. Right? He spoke roughly to us, and Joseph is rough. So that's the first observation. second observation is this. The guilty conscience of the brothers. How easy... They recall their sin. You see that? And I bet you they thought what we think when we sin. You know what we think when we, when we cross the boundary? We think, you know what, I'll do this and then I'll never remember it. But you know, we, it always just kind of stays there and our conscience kind of brings it to mind. And how easily they immediately think because of these harsh circumstances. This is because of what we did to Joseph like 27 years ago. Like, it's a guilty conscience. Now the big question, watch me now. The big question is, is Joseph being severe to be revengeful to his brothers? Is it, this is how I read it at first. What I read was, Joseph's going, oh, I got him now. They have no idea it's me because I'm all shaved and pretty looking. And I'm going to get them back. I'm going to mess with them. I'm going to toy with them like a cat toys with a mouse. Have you ever seen a cat toy with a mouse? I've seen it in cartoons, but, you know, and he's kind of messing with him. Is Joseph being revengeful or is Joseph being redemptive? Is Joseph wanting to help his brothers come to terms with their guilt so that they actually might be transformed and healed? This is a big interpretation question. And here's what I would say. I would say even though Joseph's actions are harsh, his emotions are tender. He weeps. In his brother's presence, he's rough. You're spies. I don't trust you. You're not trustworthy. And they're going, uh, we really are, but they're thinking back to their previous sin. And then Joseph sneaks away. And you know what? He weeps. You know how many times he weeps in the next three chapters? He's just crying like a baby all the time. He keeps crying like he's just won a beauty contest or something. He keeps sneaking off and weeping all over himself. Why is he weeping? Because he loves him. He loves him. He loves him. He loves him. And Joseph is doing to them what God does to us. God brings a severe mercy. How is God going to help you? 
how is God going to really help you? I'm not talking about like American religion help you, like self-help. Like, like here's a formula for how to be a better manager of your money. So what about money? How about your heart being changed? How is God going to really change you and I so that we're genuinely restored? And I'm telling you, it does not happen without God being lovingly rough. Lovingly rough. I call it the painful intimacy of our loving God. And anyone who comes up with a loving God that has no severity in his approach to us in relationship is not preaching a true God. Anyone who comes to you with a domesticated kitty cat God that never confronts us about anything and allows us to live in any way is not the loving God who created us to be all that he wants us to be, made in his image, transformed, walking in victory. Let me tell you something. God always comes to us and before he converts us, he convicts us. Before he transforms us, he bows us low. Before he does anything, he comes and he speaks roughly. But I promise you, when God is tough with you, when God is tough with you he is weeping over you with love with love how can I be restored to myself how can I be reconciled to God how can I walk in nature so that I'm I'm building a culture that glorifies him in my home in my living room in my bedroom how can I glorify God with the bedchamber and the TV and the iPhone and the iPad how can I use nature to glorify God I need God to come and to convict I need God To bring to me a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That's how Apostle Paul talked about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and following. Here's the way the Apostle Paul talked about it in the New Testament. Some people say, oh, this is the God of the Old Testament. I want the God of the New Testament. Same God, beloved. Same God. Same gospel. Always the same. Always, it hasn't changed. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and following, it says this As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads us to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Jesus would say, Jesus would say, he would say about the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit's primary work in the world was not to be a gentleman or to be polite or like Holy Spirit knocking on your door. Can I pencil you into my schedule? Will you pencil me into your schedule? I mean, can we get together? No, Holy Spirit, Jesus said, would convict the world of unrighteousness. What does that word convict mean? It means to cut. It means to cut. I promise you, though, that when God the Holy Spirit cuts, he doesn't come with an axe. Hallelujah. He doesn't come to cut off our head. He comes with a scalpel because our God is a surgeon. Jesus is a physician. And when he comes to us, he says, listen, you're sick. You're broken, but I'm going to help you. And here's how I'm going to help you. I'm going to kind of cut just a little bit. And that cutting is what leads to transformation. That's what's happening to the patriarch family. That's what's going to lead them from a dysfunctional family to still a dysfunctional family but growing. (laughs) Amen. 
And that's what God does in our life. And you know what? I just want to stop. I know this is hard. I know this is hard. I know this is hard. But listen. Some of you, God is convicting you. And I don't want you to run from that, but actually to embrace it. Some of you might be called to go through a season right now of godly sorrow and not to forbid that in your life. You know what false prophets do? They preach peace when there is no peace. And what you and I have to do is come over to that loving, severe mercy of God and to respond to it by confessing our sin, confessing, God, I've, I've begun to walk away. I've begun to, I've begun to think things I never thought I would think. I've, I'm beginning to walk in strongholds. I'm beginning to, to have relationships. I'm beginning to think in a way that I know is not right. And you know what? You glorify God as the judge of your life and the just judge of all sin when you agree with him, this is wrong. Where I'm at is wrong. And that is the first step, beloved. That's the first step in the right direction, I promise you. God loves you. He loves you too much not to convict you of those things. It's like, okay, okay. Jesus is a physician. And, and you know, you, you see those movies when there's a doctor and he's about to do surgery. And he's got his little whoosh, and he's got a little thing. And he brings out the table, you know, and they show. And he's like, scalpel, you know. And he's like, screwdriver, you know. And he, he's like, sawzall, you know. And you, and you see those tools. What are the tools that, that God uses to cut in surgery? Let me give you the tools. Let me give you just a few really quick. I got to go really fast with these. I'll let you study these on your own, but let me give them to you. Number one thing that God uses as, as, a, as an instrument to bring conviction is the law, the law of God. Now, one of the things we say at Cross Point Church is the law cannot save us. The law cannot change our hearts. It can't change our minds. But what the law does reveal is that we need surgery. The law is a mirror that shows us where the boundaries are as human beings. And when we cross over those boundaries, that's when we know that we're broken. And, and, and the Holy Spirit, this is number two thing, Holy Spirit uses the law in our life, enlightens us to appreciate the moral boundaries God has, has established. And that brings conviction because we go, my gosh, I have crossed a line morally in my life because I see how God has outlined through his precepts in his law what is right that's why we have the ten commandments that's why we have written before us and you know jesus was such a great teacher because jesus could take really complicated concepts and he could make them simple and jesus said you want to know what the law is the law is two things loving god with all your heart mind soul and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself those are the boundaries. If you look at the Ten Commandments, they actually break down into love of God, love of neighbor. Loving neighbor is not coveting. It's not desiring other people's property and not being content with your own property. It's saying, I love what God has given to me, and I'm happy for my neighbor to have what God has given to her. Love is not committing adultery, not having lust, not thinking about sexuality outside of the context that God has given to us, which is a bedchamber between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. God's, God's law tells us about loving him. That, that means we don't have idols that we're running to, to be our savior, 
when Jesus is the Savior. We don't have functional saviors that are doing for us what only God can do or what we think can do for us what only God can do. That's the law of God. And the Holy Spirit takes that law and he enlightens our mind and he shows us that we're out of bounds. Now, this is very important. You can't become a Christian by doing the law. Can I get an amen? Because the law points to a spirit that says your motives must be perfect in fulfilling the law. So even if we could follow all the rules outwardly, we could never follow all the rules in spirit. We are all broken. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But the law shows us that we need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit. We need help. We need to surrender. Okay? So the law, Holy Spirit, and then the third thing I want to tell you, and then I'll move on conscience your conscience see god has given to each human being a moral compass in their life people ask what about people who don't know the bible like what about out there in humanity where the bible hasn't been taught where the law has not been given what about what about for all those people who don't have churches or synagogues to tell them what the law of god is the bible says that god has placed his law in the conscience of all human beings so that all are without excuse that means that when people human beings cross the line they know it inwardly and they still rebel you might have been somebody who never came to church but when you've crossed the line you feel it you sense it you go there's something not right about this that's the conscience the holy spirit uses the conscience and the law and the word i could add community People in our lives that come to us, you know, it's a very convicting thing. It's the severe mercy of God sometimes comes through people that love us. Amen? I hope you've got people in your life that, that are close enough in proximity to where they can be honest with you. And they can come to you and say, hey, bro, you need a hey, bro, friend. Hey, bro, what are you doing? You can even use that falsetto voice like that. Wait, you kind of messed up. And you're like, dude, you're supposed to be my friend. Exactly. Exactly. I'm not asking all of us to go around and start confronting each other when we barely know each other. We don't want to be one of those churches. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Let proximity be the guide to give you wisdom in who you confront and who you don't confront. It's not our job to go up to somebody at the mall and say, hey, I just met you at church on Sunday, but I don't think you should be using that credit card to buy that sweater for $200. You're in sin now. You know what I mean? They might still be in sin, but you're in sin. But here's the deal, community. God uses godly people with scripture and with, with a heart for Christ. And you know what? Without that, we become disintegrated. Without that, we're separated. But with that, we get reconciled. Severe mercy. Well, hallelujah, though. I mean, if God does surgery and uses these things to bring severe mercy, ultimately, hallelujah, the gospel wakes us up from the surgery bed and begins to restore us so that we don't always have to be under conviction. Hallelujah. I mean, if God just left us on the surgery table being cut by his scalpel, being cut all the time, being convicted all the time, if we had to walk around all the time being godly sorrow, then that would be a bummer. But the good news is, is he wakes us up from this severe mercy and he gives us the second thing that leads us to reconciliation and heals our separations, which is what I call supreme grace. Supreme grace. When we come to chapter 44, the whole tone, or chapter 43, the whole tone of the passage changes. Once again, the famine is so severe that Jacob himself even is willing to let Benjamin go back 
to Egypt with his brothers so that they can get some more grain. Jacob says, take some pistachio nuts, take Benjamin, and go back and get us some more food. And, and Jacob says something interesting, I think inspired by the Holy Spirit. Even in his brokenness, Jacob had the Holy Spirit. He was in covenant with God despite his dysfunctional life. And he says something in verse 14 of chapter 43. It's interesting. He says, may God Almighty, which is El Shaddai, an important covenant name of God, grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And then he feels sorry for himself again. He's not in the spirit. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So they go, they take Benjamin and they go back to Joseph and they're worried. And the reason why they're worried is because they know that the money that they, that they were supposed to use to buy the grain was put back in their sacks. And so they're afraid they're going to be accused of stealing and they really don't want to be accused of stealing so that they can get more food. So they come up to the steward of the house and Joseph sees that Benjamin's with them at a distance and Joseph's like, I'm going to prepare him a meal, go out, says to his servant, go out and meet him. And tell them I'm going to prepare for them a meal. And while they're waiting for the meal, they say to the servant, hey, listen, man, the money kind of got put in our bags. We didn't steal it, I promise. Like, it was just there, and we didn't mean to do it, and please don't hurt us. And they, it's really funny if you read it. I don't have enough time to read the whole thing, but they're worried about their donkey. They're like, please don't take our donkey. <laughs> like, it's like the most wealthiest home in the world. I don't think they need your donkey. You know what I mean? It'd be like us having an El Camino and going, please don't take the El Camino. <laughs> but the servant says something interesting. Now watch this, verse 23. He replies, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them, which is good news. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given them donk the, their donkeys fodder, which means they fed their donkeys, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. Of course, they still don't know his identity. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? How poignant is that? He's asking about his dad that he hasn't seen all these years. And they said, Your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, whom he's never met, by the way, or, well, was real little. His mother's son and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And so they eat and all is well and the Egyptians don't eat with them because they don't like the Jewish people. And then in verse 34, it says, 
portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with them. Some of your translation says they drank and they were drunk, or they drank and they were intoxicated. The reason why I like this translation of being merry is that the word used for both being drunk and intoxicated can be used for just, hey, we're in good shape, we're all having fun. That have to mean drunkenness, so I like the whole, they drank and they were merry. In other words, they're happy. Let me, let me just put it to you this way, really quick. For the first time in this family's life, and who knows how many years, they actually get to sit down and enjoy a meal at a table without fighting, without rancor, without confusion. For the first time in who knows how many years, they're all together, all 12 are at the table. What's powerful about this, beloved, is this. The thing that they deserved the least was food. The thing that they had not earned was food. In fact, what they had earned was hunger. What they had earned was starvation. What they had earned in their actions and in their life was the famine. But what they ended up getting is they got a plate full of food. They got wine and they got bread. They got something that we call grace. The most important Christian word in the world is grace. Because what grace is, is it's getting what you don't deserve. It's getting what you haven't earned from someone who's not obligated to give it to you. In fact, someone who has every right to give you the very opposite of food. Joseph had every right to starve these guys, did he not? In fact... If you remember from sermons ago, the very reason they don't deserve food is because of this passage. Let's do a flashback. Genesis 37, 27 years before, verses 24 and 25. The brothers took him, that is Joseph, threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And what did they do? They sat down and they ate. They throw Joseph into a pit. They callously, arrogantly walk away from that pit and pretend like Joseph's not crying out from that pit. Save me. Don't leave me here. And they're eating food. And what does Joseph do 27 years later? Here's a table. Here's a meal. That, beloved, is grace. God, in his loving grace, gives us what we do not deserve. Because you know what we do with God? We throw him into the pit. And we forget about him. And we say, I'm going to make my own table. I'm going to eat my own food. I'm going to have my own gods. And Jesus is crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we're running from him as fast as we can because we think in our little, in our little limited mind, we think we can make it without God. We're convinced that we don't need that kind of relationship. And it's a lie. And the famine comes and it brings out sensitivity for him. And we come to him. You know what God does? 
He doesn't say to the running prodigal who runs home, you made your bed, you get to sleep in it, son. He doesn't say to us, you don't get to come back here. In fact, Jesus said, all who come to me, I will in no way cast out. I have prepared for you a meal. That is grace. And why is grace so important in the reconciliation, in the healing of our separation from God, from ourselves, from nature, with each other? Because grace gives us confidence. Everybody say confidence. If I'm saved by grace and if God will give me what I don't deserve, then I don't have to question whether my faith in Jesus is enough or not. And that confidence gives me room to enjoy, to be merry, to come back to fellowship, to come back to joy, to come back to relationship, to come back to what God called me to be. At any moment in time, any one of you, and myself included, can come to God's table freely in the name of Jesus and know that he will love us because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no separation from the love in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us and gave his life for us and defeated death. And all he says, just like Joseph, if he says, come on back and come to my table and I will welcome you and I will give you joy. I will give you wine that will give you joy that will last a lifetime and heal all of your relationships as time goes on. I will nourish you. That's grace. Supreme grace. And why do I call By the way, I don't have time to go into all this, but I'm going to anyways. Why? Because I'm the senior pastor. That's why. And you can get up and leave if you want to, but that'd be really rude. (laughs) So, it's a free country. But why do I call it supreme grace? I call it supreme grace because it's sovereign grace. It is the sovereign providence of God that leads the brothers through a series of events. And without that series of events in history, they never end up at that table with Joseph. And the same thing is true for you and I. Everything in our life, God is weaving together in a tapestry that will lead us to Christ. And if you are a Christian today, it's because God put together a series of events in your heart and in your life that would lead you to Jesus Christ. Who determined where you were born? God did. Who determined who would come in your life and speak the gospel? God did. Who determined that you would one day have a heart to believe in him in a world that's filled with unbelief? The Holy Spirit did. It is sovereign grace and supreme grace that leads us to the table. Therefore, God gets all of the glory. We get all of the confidence and the enjoyment of this grace at the table of God. You see, secure of our salvation is rooted in the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God. Severe mercy. Supreme grace. And here's the final thing. I've got to do this one quick. The third thing is sacrificial love. What does God do to reconcile us and to heal our separations? Sacrificial love. I've got to tell you the rest of the story relatively quick. But in chapter 44, Joseph tests his brothers. He puts a silver cup in the bag of Benjamin. And the reason why he puts it in Benjamin's bag is because Benjamin is the youngest. And then he sends out a guy to to bring them back as they walk away. brings them before them and says, you stole them from me. And they said, we haven't stolen anything. He said, yes, you did. You stole. And they open up all the bags, and there in Benjamin's sack is the silver cup. And Joseph's like, what are you going to do? Now, here's the test. 
27 years before, they were willing to absolutely throw their little brother under the bus so that they'd be okay. They were willing to throw Joseph into the pit, and they didn't care, and they didn't, they, they didn't, it didn't matter to them at all. But Judah, in this moment, Judah says, in one of the greatest speeches, it's just a great speech, verses 18 through 34, it's a great speech, and I don't have time to read it, beloved, even though I am the senior pastor, I just don't. First of all, because I'm tired too, you know, you're tired, I'm tired, I can't do it, all right, but what Judah says is Judah says, there is no way I'm going home without Benjamin. In fact, take me, let me be kept, let me be killed, and let Benjamin go home because I am not going to hurt my father. I'm not going to do this to Jacob. It will break his heart. I'm going to give my life for the life of Benjamin. I'm totally willing. I don't care. Here's the way his speech ends in verses 33 and 34. So poignant, so powerful. He says, Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. As a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And you get Joseph's response. Now Joseph completely sees that Judah is a changed mind. Grace has had its work in Judah's life. You know, grace always produces the fruit of transformation. It always leads to transformation. And Judah is a changed man. And in verse 1 it says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried. He's just crying all the time. Crying. Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brother, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. They're like, what? I'm going to edit that out. Okay. <laughs> so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. Love this. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it's not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made a father. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and ruler over all the land. Hurry up. Go get Jake. Go get my daddy. Bring him home. We're going to have great land. We'll give you a ranch. I'm going, to give you a, I'm, going to give, I'm going to give you everything you need. You're going to have food. You're going to have a place to leave. There's bread enough to spare in my father's house. Listen, we are going to rock this joint. We're going to celebrate because we are now re reunited. We are now reconciled. And what I see in both Judah and in Joseph, and I love this about this story, is that both of them are types of Christ. Judah is a type of Jesus in the fact he says, I'm willing to give my life so that Benjamin can, can live. And that's what Jesus does for us. We call it sacrificial love or substitutionary atonement. Jesus in my place. But Joseph also. Joseph interprets his history theologically in these terms. 
The reason why I've gone through all of this is so I could take your place in poverty, so I could take your place, and so I could provide for you what you need when this famine would come. And that is the sacrificial love of God in Jesus Christ. And the reason why, and I'll be done here, the reason why I like that there's two types of Christ here is because there's two applications. The first application is this. You are made right with God when you come to Jesus and say, you are my substitute. You do for me what I can't do. You fulfill for me what I cannot fulfill in myself. And I believe in you. I trust in you. I am depending on your name for my relationship with God. Anyone who does that is made right with God. That's the first application. But here's the second application. The second application of this story of reconciliation is that now as believers, we are to do and to reenact and embody that substitution for other people. You and I are now to respond in life by saying, you come before me. I will become least so you can become more. I will become poor so you can become rich with God. The first will be last and the last will be first, Jesus said. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself and serve one another in humility. The application of our reconciliation with God is to be reconciled to one another and to serve one another and to make sure that we are serving each other in humble confidence. Sacrificial love. And when you receive that message and you're formed by it and shaped by it, it begins to guide your marriages, your singleness. It, it guides what it means to be a child, to have a mom and a dad. It, it, guides, it guides you in your older age, in your younger age. It guides all of your relationships, this gospel. It's a philosophy. It's a worldview. It's an optic by which we are to see all of life. Judas not only changed in terms of understanding that Joseph's made him right. Judas changed because he's willing to do for his brother what Joseph's doing for him. Reconciliation. God brings it about through severe mercy. He brings it about through supreme grace. And he brings it about through sacrificial love. I have to close with the words of a of, a, comment, of, a, of, a, of a, uh, a of a guy who wrote a commentary on Genesis, Bruce Waltke. He's a he's a he's a brilliant scholar, and he said this. And I just think it's really, really great. It's a great application as we think about how we walk in this reconciliation and get healed up of all of our separations. He says this quote. This scene, in other words, everything we've talked about here in Genesis, this scene exposes the anatomy of reconciliation. It is about loyalty to a family member in need, even when he or she looks guilty. It's about giving glory to God by owning up to sin and its consequences. It's about overlooking favoritism. Reconciliation is offering up oneself to save another, demonstrating true love by concrete acts of sacrifice that create a context of trust. Oh, man, that's good. Discarding control and the power of knowledge in favor of intimacy, embracing deep compassion, tender feelings, sensitivity and forgiveness, and talking to one another. A dysfunctional family that allows these virtues to be embraced, it will become a light to the world. Let us pray.